Bibles together to 2 Corinthians 9 as we continue our study today. We will begin in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now, the past couple of Sundays, we've been in a section of this letter where the Apostle Paul has been dealing with the matter of financial giving. And the occasion of this discussion has been an offering given by the church in Corinth for the benefit of the church in Jerusalem. It's been quite a discussion. Two Sundays ago, we looked at the first half of chapter eight where Paul illustrates how to give and he used the Macedonian church as an example as well as Jesus Christ. And then last Sunday, we saw Paul describing the characteristics of godly giving. <coughs> Excuse me. So by the time we get to chapter nine, verse six, we really see Paul begin to wrap up his personal appeal to the Corinthian church by describing what happens when we give. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about what happens when you give? Honestly, I don't think about that when I give, I just give, so I'll confess to you that over the past couple of weeks, it's been refreshing to study this passage and be reminded of what does happen when we give financially to the local church. And the first thing that Paul describes here that happens when we give is that we are enriched. First on your outline is we are enriched. Now I wanna warn you, I'm gonna spend most of our time this morning on the first few verses, verses six through 11, compared to the rest of the passage. So let's read that together. Again, beginning in 2 Corinthians 9, verse six says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I hope you noticed in verse 11 the word enriched because that word sort of summarizes how God works as we financially give to the local church. And what verse six through 11 is, is it's a description of that enriching. And it's interesting because the word enriched had previously been used by Paul in both 1 Corinthians 1 as well as 2 Corinthians 6. And I mention that because context always affects the meaning of words. And so in 1 Corinthians 1 and in 2 Corinthians 6, and here in 2 Corinthians 9, the word enriched is not talking about tangible wealth, but it's referring to spiritual wealth. See, along the path of our financial stewardship in this life, God will make us wealthy in Christ. That's where the real riches are. 
And that wealth is a spiritual wealth. And I think it's important to clarify that right off the bat because this passage is regularly abused and perverted by prosperity preachers. See, friends, money is neutral. Having a lot of money is not a sin and having little money is not a sin. The love of money is a sin according to the Bible. Both first and second Timothy make that very clear. And in the gospels, Luke describes the Pharisees in Luke 16 as lovers of money. And he doesn't mean that as a compliment. We can sin by having, but we can sin by loving money whether we have a lot of money or we have very little money. The problem is money can become an idol and idolatry is a sin. It's one of the big 10. When money becomes an idol, we see it as the ultimate thing in our life. It becomes our master. And Jesus had something to say about that in Matthew 6, 24, when he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this morning, friends, as we look at the Apostle Paul out explaining how God enriches us, he's not talking about dollars. He's talking about spiritual wealth. And that begins, letter A on your outline, with the principle from creation. <clears throat> the principle from creation. Paul is simply reiterating something that's very observable in God's creation in verse six. And that principle is straightforward. Sparse sowing leads to sparse reaping. And conversely, generous sowing leads to generous reaping. It's not complicated. And it's just a fact of life for a farmer because this is how God has created the agrarian part of the natural world. And the same is true when we give money. And I love the fact that with all that's been said in chapter eight and chapter nine so far, Paul gets to this moment in verse six and he says, the point is this. He gets to the point and the point is, don't give sparsely, give generously. That's a self-evident principle in nature. You sow a lot of seed, you're gonna harvest a lot. You sow less, you'll harvest less. So why in the world would the human heart fight against that principle when it comes to money? Well, because sadly, we view our giving as a loss to us. But friends, the reality is in God's economy, when we give financially, money is not lost, it is sown. Pastor Russell mentioned earlier that it's our 65th birthday today. And 55 people attended that first service, and I wasn't there, and you weren't either, but theoretically, let's say that on that day, someone gave $50 to the church. Giving $50 in 1958 would be the equivalent of giving $540 today, thanks to inflation. That's a lot of money. And if I gave that amount today, I'd be tempted to think that my giving $540 is my loss. I gave 540, so I have 540 less than before I gave. This is how we think. But the principle from creation says, no, that's not reality. That money isn't a loss because it was sown to yield more. See, whatever money was given on that first Sunday at McGregor, it wasn't a loss in 1958. And you know how I know that? Look around. Just look around. No, don't look at the building. Look at the people around. Go ahead, look at the people around you. It's okay. 
That money was sown, and for 65 years, there's been an ongoing harvest. And you and I are a part of that harvest because somebody gave 50 bucks in 1958. Again, in God's economy, when we give financially, the money is not lost, it's sown. So there's a principle from creation here. And then Paul explains the participant's attitude. The participant's attitude. In the beginning of verse seven, we see another way that we are enriched and it's through the instruction of the attitude that is supposed to be in a person who gives. And there are three traits that should be present in the attitude of those who give. Look at what he says. He's, number one is deliberately, verse seven. Look at that in your Bible, verse seven. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Think of this as premeditated giving. <laughs> Legally, a person gets convicted of premeditated murder. Why? Because they planned it. They made preparation in order that they might carry it out. And I realize this is a negative example, but the difference between involuntary manslaughter and premeditated murder is that in the latter case, the perpetrator made a decision in their heart before they acted on it. Paul's talking here about premeditated giving as he has decided in his heart. Friends, all obedience for the Christian is an interaction between the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and what we decide in our hearts to do. And financial giving in the local church is no different than that. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. Our consistent giving to a local church is an act of discipline, it just is. It's a premeditated decision to give what we have already decided in our heart. And when we give, we are to give deliberately. But we are also to give gladly. Number two on your outline is gladly. Stay in verse seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly. That, that word reluctantly there means with sadness and regret. That's not the attitude that we're supposed to give with. Reluctant giving is the kind of giving that happened a lot between my two boys when they were younger, when they were playing together. My wife and I would, would try to remind them, you're going to share your toys with your brother. But inevitably, once the playing starts, you'd hear one kid say, hey, give it back. And the other kid say, no, that's mine. And then I would have to go in there and I would have to get down on one knee and talk to the, the kid that took the toy back and I would have to remind him and say, but remember, mom and dad said, we're going to share our toys with your brother, okay? And he would say, why? And I would say, because I'm financing this whole operation, that's why. <laughs> Am I wrong? Does either child own anything? No, they don't. They don't own a thing. And typically what happens in that moment is that the child who grabbed the toy back gives it to the other child and goes, okay, here. They're giving but they're giving reluctantly with sadness and regret. And the sad thing is we do that with God. It's sad because he is actually the one who is financing this whole operation. And I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about your job. I'm talking about my house, our bank accounts. The sovereign God of the universe is over everything in the universe. 
because he owns everything in the universe, because he created everything in the universe. It's all his, including our bank accounts. The reason a kid won't give a toy back gladly is because they think it's theirs. And they don't understand, or they, maybe they've forgotten, oh yeah, my father owns all of this. Man, I hope that light bulb clicks for some of you this morning. That you're reminded, oh yeah, my father owns all this to begin with. And he's given some of it to me right now as a temporary steward so that I can take care of it. So when I give some of it, I don't have to be reluctant about that. Friends, my wife and I have been married for 26 years. <laughs> Thank you. Amen to that. And, and like some couples, she stresses about finances more than I do. And there are times that I've had to remind her in those 26 years, babe, God has always taken care of us. Now, if you see her today, don't tell her I shared this little secret with you, but um, do you know why I tell her that? To remind myself that God has taken care of us always. See, when we give reluctantly, we have forgotten who's financing this whole thing. And we all need to be reminded of that. And as we remember it, we can give gladly. But we also give, number three on your outline, freely. Stay in verse seven, look at it with me. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. The phrase there, under compulsion, means obligation and distress. Paul is reminding them that among the many ways that they are free in Christ, their financial giving to the church in Jerusalem is a part of that freedom. And anytime you and I give to the church, we are to do it freely, not under compulsion. One of the things that we as elders have sought to do for the past seven years is to be upfront with you, the congregation, about our finances. And tonight, in our member meeting, we will briefly go over a three-page financial report that we typically go over in every member meeting. We, we want this congregation to know how things are going in our finances. We also want you to know about the opportunities to give financially. See, as elders, what we do is we just present the opportunity to you and then we trust God that he will work through his people to meet that opportunity if it is in fact his will. On a practical level, what that means is we don't manipulate or pressure anybody to give. See, two of the qualifications that are mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 for an elder is that the man not must, be, must not be quarrelsome nor a lover of money. Those aren't the only two qualifications, but those two qualifications are right next to each other in 1 Timothy 3.3. The Greek word that gets translated as quarrelsome is the word amachos, ah meaning not, and macho meaning bully. Elders are not bullies. A man who is a manipulative bully is not qualified to be an elder in God's church. He's also not qualified if he's a lover of money because that kind of man would manipulate and bully the sheep while he pursues ministry for his own financial gain. So like we did with Renew One, and like we're doing now with Renew Two and the Change the World offering and our annual budget every year, we share the opportunity with you. And as elders, we 
trust God to work in the hearts of his people who will freely give. Not under compulsion, not through manipulation, but freely. Here's the thing I wrestled with in this passage. There's not a command in here in this passage to give. In the original Greek text, there's not an imperative. It's implied, it's intended, but it's not as simple as thou shalt give. So I'm expecting somewhere in this passage as I'm studying it that Paul commands the Corinthians to give, but he doesn't do that here. He uses commands earlier in the letter uh, on the subject of reconciliation, but he doesn't do it with financial giving. And here's why. If he demanded them to give, their giving would not be joyful generosity. Instead, it would be under compulsion. Now, there are, there are, are, are other places in the New Testament where there is a command to give, but not here. This is describing a Christian who gives not sporadically, not reluctantly, not impulsively, but instead they give deliberately, gladly, and freely because they have been enriched by God. And when you get right down to it, the appeal that Paul is making here is our response to the posture of God's heart. That's next on your outline, the posture of God's heart. Another way that we're enriched through our giving is to be reminded of the heart of God. What are the first three words of that next phrase at the end of verse seven? Look at it with me. For God, what? Loves. See, if you're a Christian, you and I don't give in response to intimidation or manipulation. No, what do we give in response to? God's love. That's the posture of God's heart towards those he has saved in Christ. And I, I realize that we are supposed to give cheerfully, but that's not the main point of this last phrase in verse seven. The point is about God and his love. First John 4.19 states, we love because he first loved us. And friends, we give because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, as John 3.16 states. And here at the end of verse seven, we see that God has a particular love for each one of his children who gives cheerfully. You wanna claim a promise from God today about financial giving? There it is. God loves a cheerful giver. That's a promise. The Greek word used for cheerful here is hilaros. The word we get hilarious from. God loves a hilarious giver. This is describing somebody who is absolutely happy and thrilled to give financially. Why? Well, there's two reasons why. One, their sins have been forgiven. And two, their eternal destination has been radically changed. That's two hilarious reasons to give cheerfully. See, giving is a response to the posture of God's heart towards sinners like me and you. This is why the Macedonians in chapter eight were so eager to give because they had remembered what God had done for them in Christ. And friends, if you have no desire to give to your church, you don't really have a giving problem, you have a heart problem. And if you claim to be a Christian, my encouragement to you is to remember the posture of God's heart. Remember what he's done. And in remembering that, you will be enriched and you will grow in your giving. 
We are enriched by the posture of God's heart. Another way that we are enriched is through the pervasiveness of God's grace. Letter D on your outline. The pervasiveness of God's grace. You might remember back when COVID was sort of at its peak that we heard the word pervasive a lot because everybody was trying to figure out how pervasive is the virus, meaning how widespread was it? And what Paul explains next is how pervasive and widespread God's grace is in the life of the believer. And one of the techniques that Paul uses throughout his letters at times is to anticipate objections possibly to what he's writing. So verse eight seems to have been included to refute an objection that some of the Corinthians may have had and some of you here today may have the same objection. And the objection is this. What if my circumstances change? Do I still give? Remember at this moment, the Corinthian church was financially sound. The Jerusalem church was not. And the Macedonian church was not wealthy either, but they had already given their part of the offering that was going to Jerusalem. Why were those two other churches struggling financially at this time? Because of persecution. But Corinth had not seen that kind of persecution just yet, but they knew it was coming. So it's not an insane question to ask, what if my circumstances change? And I realize today that economically things aren't great for a good number of people. So the reality is for all of us, our circumstances can change for the worse financially. But look at what God's word says in verse eight. Look at it with me. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let's do a little Q&A on that verse. What word does Paul use four times in that verse? All, that's right. Now, what word does he use twice? Abound. And abound means more than enough. So what Paul is saying here is regardless of our circumstances, if we are in Christ, we have more than enough of God's grace to do more than enough in every good work. I'm gonna say that again. If we are in Christ, we have more than enough of God's grace to do more than enough in every good work. God's grace to his children is not limited in any way. His grace is pervasive. You know, when you go to the beach, you get sand in unexpected places, don't you? Now, we don't have to go into any great detail about that, but it's surprising where sand can get. And you usually don't realize it until you leave the beach. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. God's grace is like that. God's grace for each Christian has all sufficiency in all things at all times. But wait, what if my circumstances change? Brothers and sisters, we have more than enough grace to do more than enough in every good work, in all things and at all times. Financial giving is not conditional based on my circumstances or your circumstances. Some of you know this because you've tested it out in your life the hard way. You give faithfully and you're generous to other people, but there have been times and seasons in your life where you don't think you're gonna make it. But you do make it because God always provides for the needs of his people. 
Verse eight is not a promise that things won't negatively change for us economically. God has not promised that. But when things do change, God's grace for each Christian has all sufficiency in all things at all times. That's another promise from God. (laughs) And it's a reflection of the pervasive grace of Christ. Another way that we are enriched is the produce of righteousness. He talks about this in verses nine through 10. Paul goes back to the imagery of seed sowing here and he does that with a direct quote from Psalm 112, which is a psalm about a righteous man, one who, who lives in a godly manner. And it's quoted here in verse nine and it says, he has distributed freely. Or some of your translations may say, he scatters abroad. The righteous man is the one who does not hesitate to be generous. Particularly when it comes to the needs of other people. It goes on to say, he has given to the poor. But the really amazing thing is that the quote in verse nine calls this kind of free and generous giving righteousness. (laughs) And it's righteousness in a good way. It's not the self-righteousness that the Bible condemns, but this kind of giving is an expression of the righteousness that only God can give a person. The righteous person cannot help themselves but to give And in verse 10, Paul sort of reinforces what the psalmist has said by essentially making the same point. Look at verse 10. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, God enriches us and makes us wealthy, not in dollars, but in Christ. My wife and I have been giving financially to this church since we became members 21 years ago. And by God's grace alone, we are more generous now than when we first got here. You wanna know why? Because verse 10 has repeatedly been proven to be true in our lives. Our great God has both supplied his provision for my family and multiplied his provision for my family so that we could sow more and more over those 21 years. And as he has done that, our faith in him has grown. See, God gives so that I might give. And he replenishes and multiplies what I give so that I might grow spiritually and better express the righteousness that he gave me in salvation. Friends, that kind of growth is normal. It's the process of sanctification. As a husband, one of God's purposes in marriage is my sanctification. As he refines me as a married man to trust in him now more than I did when I first got married. As a parent, one of God's purposes in my parenting is my sanctification. As he teaches me to love my children like he loves me. Our youngest just turned 18 this past week. And honestly, I thought parenting would get easier by now, but it hasn't. And that burden causes me to trust in the Lord even more than when my boys were little. And as a giver, one of God's purposes in my giving is, you guessed it, my sanctification. 
And as I give to the work of God's kingdom, it causes me to trust in the Lord more. And time and time again, what he does is he grants me a harvest of righteousness. See, financial giving is no different from all the other means of sanctification that God uses in our lives. What he ultimately does through you and I is as we give, he causes us to trust in him more as we follow him. That's how the produce of righteousness grows in us. Friends, we are enriched in so many ways. And there's one more way that Paul mentions, and that's the payoff of thanksgiving. Letter F on your outline. The payoff of thanksgiving. Christian giving is designed to create more thanksgiving to God. Paul tells us how the uh, tells the Corinthians how their giving is going to affect the church in Jerusalem in verse 11 when he says, look at it with me, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which will produce through us thanksgiving to God. That's the payoff. The believers in Jerusalem are gonna thank God for that gift. And I'll expound more upon this point in our Beyond the Notes podcast this week. But it's among the many ways that God enriches his people. That's what happens when we give. He enriches us. But what else happens when we give? Well, number two on your outline, needs are met. Let's don't miss the obvious. Needs get met. When we give financially, tangible needs are taken care of. The church in Jerusalem was being persecuted at this time. And it is believed that many of the members of the church there had lost their livelihoods because they now identified with Christ. So as the Corinthians gave, they were meeting tangible needs in the lives of the members of the Jerusalem church. In verse 12, Paul says this, look at it with me. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing many thanksgivings to God. So again, we see the payoff of thanksgiving, but it's also made very clear in here that the Corinthians' financial gift will meet needs. The service that Paul is mentioning there is their giving to this offering. Now, in just a couple of weeks, we're gonna all bring our little green cups back, filled up with our change. And we've done this for a couple of years here at McGregor. Uh, and the amazing thing is, is that our change has literally gone around the world. We've provided for needs in Mexico and Zambia. We've helped build a kitchen in a Baptist church in Belize. We've provided training materials for a church plant in Ireland that we just sent a team to. We help fund a solar project that provides electricity for our sister church in Haiti. All in all, we've assisted in over 35 different projects since the first Change the World offering was taken. And who did that? God did. And how did he do it? Through our change. And what happened? Needs were met. As we give, we are enriched. As we give, needs are met. And finally, as we give, God is glorified. Last on your outline there. We, we regularly say around here, God does all things for two reasons, his glory and our good. And that's not just true in some aspects of life, friends, but it's true for all of life, including financial giving. So let's see what the rest of this passage has to say. Pick up in verse 13 and we'll read through 15. By their approval of this service, 
They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. When we give, God gets the glory. And that happens as givers submit. There's an interesting phrase there in verse 13. He says, they will glorify God because of your submission. See, as the Corinthians give to this offering, whether they know it or not, they are drawing attention to who God is. God is a giver. He's not a taker. And when we give, we draw attention to who he is. This is one of the ways God is glorified. That we, as moral agents, freely submit to the authority of God in our lives. And as Christians, we do that in a lot of different ways. But financial giving is one of those areas in which we submit. And as we give, God reveals who he is. The giver, the one who is worthy of our submission. And because he's worthy, we freely submit to him. But God is also glorified as the gospel is validated. Look again at verse 13. Look at what he says. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul is connecting their generosity to the confession that they hold to. See, the Corinthians have been changed by Christ, but the Jerusalem church wasn't too sure about that. (laughs) The Corinthian church was very different than the Jerusalem church. Their church was predominantly Gentile, while the Jerusalem church was predominantly made up of those who had been saved out of a Jewish background. So the Jerusalem church was skeptical at this time about the Corinthian church, not only for their ethnic differences, but because of the Corinthian struggles. So this offering was a validation test for the Corinthians. It's not just them talking the talk, it's them walking that talk. And their giving became evidence that Christ had changed and was still changing their lives. Has Christ changed your life? Has Christ changed your life? Good, show me your calendar to prove it. Show me how you're spending your time. Has Christ changed your life? Show me your worn out Bible. Show me how you're starting your day. Has Christ changed your life? I think you know where I'm about to go. Show me your checkbook. (laughs) How are you spending your money? How am I spending my money? You probably heard the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. The Corinthian church was doing exactly that here. Their giving and our giving today is glorifying to God because it's part of the validating proof that God has saved us. And he's glorified by that because he's the one who gets the credit for our salvation. As we live generously, it is evidence that we have received the grace that God has shown to us. It's why Paul finishes in verse 15 with thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He's not talking about money there. That's not about the offering going to Jerusalem. He's talking about salvation in Christ. The late R.C. Sproul said, our giving is only a small imitation of God's own excellent generosity to us, especially in the inexpressible gift of his son.
next Sunday, we will see Paul change the subject matter to a new topic. (laughs) But before he does that, he ends this conversation about financial giving on the same note that he started it with in chapter eight, verse one, and that is the grace of God as expressed in the gospel of Christ. Friends, in a moment, we're gonna sing our final song and there are gonna be different ways that each of us will respond to the word today. But if in your response this morning, if you'd like to pray with somebody or talk with somebody, we'd love to do that with you. Myself and others will be hanging around at the end of the service. And if you've never turned from your sin and by faith trusted in Christ to save you, it would be our joy today to have that conversation with you. Because if that's you, giving money isn't going to help you face the wrath of God on judgment day. Only the inexpressible gift from God of Jesus Christ will save you.